Section 3 of Gautium Crucis, A Meditation for Good Friday, by Walter Lowry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The second word, salvation and judgment, and one of the malefactors, which were hanged with him, railed on him, saying, Art thou the Christ? Save thyself in us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Fearest thou not God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds but this man hath done nothing amiss and he said jesus remember me when thou enterest upon thy reign and he said unto him verily i say unto thee to-day thou shalt be with me in paradise luke twenty three thirty nine through forty three c f mark fifteen thirty two matthew twenty two forty four a comfortable word this is a comfortable word which jesus spoke to the dying thief it carries also to us the glad assurance that in the moment of death we may expect after no long waiting but as if it were to-day to be with him in whatsoever place it may be enough to know that it is with him there may await us a still fuller life beyond the resurrection enough that at once we shall be with him whatever holy discipline may engage us in paradise there shall be no dread waiting before we are with the lord there is no fearful interval during which the human spirit cast out of the body wanders in waterless places seeking rest and finding none but as st paul says we are of good courage knowing that to be away from the body home is to be at home with the lord we have nowhere a more definite statement from jesus about the life beyond death it tells us little but it tells us enough when thou enterest upon thy reign said the thief to-day replied jesus we have nowhere else so definite a statement about the time when christ shall receive his kingdom and begin to reign we have seen that it could not be while he was hampered and humiliated by the restrictions of humanity in the flesh we here learn that no sooner was he relieved of these restrictions than he entered upon his reign dear as the old relation was when jesus dwelt with his disciples in terms of social intercourse it was replaced by a better when he became the object of the religious faculty defining and satisfying their yearning after intercourse with a supersensual society when the lord was apprehended as the spirit his presence was experienced no longer merely with men but in them there is where the kingdom of heaven is then is when his true dominion began jesus tells us very little about the last things either as they concern him or concern us and much that we think we learn from him we learn only by gross literalism and in interpreting his most figurative language we speak of the penitent thief but he is not so called in the gospel neither is there anything in the story to indicate such an experience as we associate with this word true he was doing penance and that to the uttermost and though he suffered it unwillingly he yet acknowledged that it was the due reward of his deeds but the same penance was exacted of the other thief and it is implied that he too recognized it as condign there is no doubt that jesus's promise of blessedness implied the forgiveness of sin 
it is also true that jesus ever demanded repentance it is therefore the more striking that he forgives sins without being asked whatever men ask trustfully of jesus and importunately he was sure to give them and so compassionate was he of their infirmities that when through ignorance and asking they asked amiss craving bodily health when they most needed the healing of their souls he gave them unasked the greater boon with the less so it was with the man sick of the palsy it was only a mute appeal this man made even for healing of the body but louder than words spoke the faithfulness of his friends who had overcome all obstacles to carry him into the house therefore jesus seeing their faith said unto the sick of the palsy son thy sins are forgiven which none of them had thought of asking this is not the only man that has been saved by the faith of others in any case it is faith that saves not repentance to a woman who showed the most extravagant signs of compunction and repentance jesus said thy faith hath saved thee repentance is a normal operation of faith and in turn it is the birth thrill of a larger faith but what jesus values is not the process and the struggle but the attainment and this he counts most perfect in the child where there is no struggle or process but where faith is in intuition and trust in instinct moreover though jesus admired a great faith and desired a large faith he exacted neither what he did insist upon was a whole faith though it were as small as a grain of mustard seed and to that he responded not with proportionate gifts with small morsels of grace but disproportionately with his whole grace the dying thief may have had a small faith and a narrow faith and a low sort of faith but he assuredly had a whole faith when he greeted jesus upon the cross as heir apparent to a throne and in royal response jesus gave him all that a subject can ask of a king christ is saviour upon this word of pardon to the dying thief we must still linger long enough to note that it was the last instance in his earthly ministry of jesus's direct and individual dealing with a sinful soul the wonder of it is that neither his own agony nor the task of accomplishing a universal redemption could preoccupy his mind to the exclusion of an individual sinner's appeal we think chiefly of the indirect and universal significance of jesus's ministry but the gospels represent him as a preacher of righteousness and salvation directly and personally engaged in the cure of souls in this aspect his ministry is comparable in kind with that of his disciples throughout all the christian centuries he is the great shepherd and bishop of souls he was a fisher of men before he enlisted peter and andrew in that calling how high a calling it is we perceive most clearly from the fact that jesus himself found in it his chiefest joy and accounted it the highest performance of righteousness the joy which jesus found in preaching the gospel and in witnessing its savings effects is shown in the first glad months of his public ministry in galilee when in response to the urgency of the people clamoring to see him he left the desert solitude with its divine companionship of prayer and eagerly cried let us go elsewhere into the next towns that i may preach there also for to this end came i forth this saying reminds us of jesus's response to pilate 
thou sayest that i am a king to this end i have been born and to this end am i come into the world that i should bear witness unto the truth the character of his kingship as it was exercised in his earthly life is expressed in the fact that he was a preacher the preaching of the gospel is a direct preparation for the kingdom and although its work is accomplished unobserved in the hearts of men jesus attaches to it a value hardly inferior to the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom in glory st john is therefore justified in summing up the whole significance of jesus in terms of the revealing word nor does st john suffer this lofty generality to obscure the fact of jesus's joy in his personal and individual contact with men the exclamation of jesus by the well of jacob sounds like a scrap from one of the synoptic gospels lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white already unto the harvest we have here to observe especially that the joy which jesus experienced in contemplating the ripening fruits of his husbandry was not prompted by thousands crowding to hear him but by a chance conversation with one sinful samaritan woman the joy which that experience afforded him is expressed by the rapt absorption which rendered him indifferent to the food his disciples were fetching him and by his enigmatic reply to them i have meat to eat which ye know not my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work righteousness in the broad sense in which jesus understood it did not mean the literal performance of legal precepts it meant to do the will of god god's will as jesus knew and revealed it is that every man shall be saved therefore to cooperate in saving men is the highest performance of righteousness for every child of god and the highest privilege he can attain on earth jesus rejoiced in the relief of human distress in any form we have no reason to suppose that he healed men of their bodily ailments only as a means to the healing of their souls it is perfectly clear from the gospels that his deeds of kindness were not prompted by any ulterior motive but were the spontaneous expression of his love for men it was men he would help men in the concrete and not the loveless abstraction which we commonly denote when we say souls he was prompted to help them in every distress and was ready to employ any means in his power having resisted the temptation to perform miracles on his own behalf he could not resist the impulse to exert his supernatural powers for the relief of others this relief of bodily distress jesus accounted a work of righteousness the story of the good samaritan clearly reveals this estimate of deeds of kindness but it is revealed no less emphatically with reference to his own acts this appears from the conclusion of his argument with the pharisees about the propriety of healing on the sabbath the man with a withered hand wherefore it is lawful to do good on the sabbath day this wherefore we may further note is deduced from the incomparable value of a man how much more then is a man of more value than a sheep it is not the will of my father which is in heaven says jesus that one of these little ones should perish jesus was the first to recognize the incomparable value of every human soul the individualism which distinguishes our christian civilization is a consequence of his teaching personality first emerges into clear light 
when we recognize that every individual soul is an object of the heavenly father's loving care when jesus said what doth it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life he does not mean to emphasize the trivial thought that one cannot enjoy the world he has gained if his life be ended thereby his emphasis lies rather upon the incomparable value of a human soul and upon the glorious potentiality of self-realization as a son of god which is forfeited by this paltry exchange hence the awful woe which he pronounces against whosoever shall cheat out of his eternal blessedness one human soul hence too the terrible severity of self-discipline which he enjoins in view of the eternal prize hence the joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth he who shares in the work of saving souls partakes of a heavenly joy such was the constant joy of jesus amidst all the trials of his ministry and the unexpected conversion of the dying thief afforded him surely a new joy in his passion christ as judge it is a comfortable word which jesus addressed to the dying thief but besides this thought there emerges another of a very different complexion we have to remember that there were two crosses one on the right hand and the other on the left there was a believing thief but there was one also that railed on him and to the word of grace on the one hand corresponds the silence of doom on the other these two crosses are an epitome of the world there are innumerable points in which one man may differ from another but fundamentally there are two kinds those on the right hand and those on the left there is between them no sure mark of distinction which men can trace but the difference is as deep as life the difference awaits its revelation the two walk side by side in the world and each alike bears his cross a burden we are prone to forget which no man may escape though he may forbear to choose it but to the one it is the gate of life to the other the mere instrument of death between them another cross bears the propitiation for the sins of the whole world intended for all available for all though only one will accept it and the other rails what stranger paradox can there be than that jesus hung upon the cross at once as victim and as judge he came to save the world but his very coming constituted a judgment st john says for god sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world should be saved through him yet jesus says in the same gospel for judgment am i come into the world st john himself however resolves the contradiction when he explains and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light we loosely say that light makes shadows whereas in fact it makes them not but breaks up the one universal shadow of darkness limiting the shadows which it defines and really lightening by reflection what it seems to blacken by contrast light is beneficent altogether in its purpose and use but it cannot shine in the world without revealing the darkness that is st john's thought the incarnate word of god came with purpose all beneficent but his coming could not but involve a test of hearts inasmuch as it plainly put before men the choice which discovers the deepest depths of their nature 
The word judgment may be used in either of two senses or in both. It may mean the process of discrimination resulting in division and segregation, like as the shepherd separateth the sheep from the goats, the one on the right hand and the other on the left. Or it may denote the decisive verdict, the sentence of condemnation or acquittal. Judgment is the first and fundamental function of kings, and Jesus claimed it in its whole extent. To pronounce condemnatory judgment was not his purpose in coming into the world, but judgment was necessarily involved in his coming. The rejection of him in some sort forestalls the verdict of the last assize, and even here definitive sentence must sometimes be pronounced. This is the meaning of the word of prophecy which Jesus himself cited and his disciples developed. He was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, rejected indeed with men, but with God-elect, precious, and made the headstone of the corner. For you which believe is the preciousness, but for such as disbelieve, they shall stumble at the word. Every one that falleth on that stone shall be broken to pieces, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will scatter him as dust. At the cross was fulfilled the prophetic word of Simeon, Behold, this child is set for the falling and rising up of many in Israel, and for a sign which is spoken against. Yea, and a sword shall pierce through thine own soul, that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus himself said, Happy is he who shall find no occasion of stumbling in me. This double character of the cross St. Paul also recognized, for the word of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness, but unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ hung upon the cross at once as Savior and as Judge. We read that double office in Michelangelo's picture of the Last Judgment. The general theme of the picture and many of its details were fixed by a tradition two hundred years older than this painter, and the whole spirit of it is strange and repellent to our age. But there is truth in it, and the truth is told with consummate power. It is the crucified Christ which comes upon the clouds to judgment, and the hand once pierced for the salvation of men is stretched forth with a gesture. We're at a loss to define what the gesture is. The general attitude is one which may be traced to the earliest art of the church. Originally it represented the teacher proclaiming the gospel. In the early Middle Ages it was interpreted as an act of blessing. The later Middle Ages transformed it into a judgment of condemnation. But never before was this gesture depicted so equivocally as here. It represents the proclamation of that word which either saves or judges, according as men accept or reject it. It signifies at once blessing and ban. With mysterious power it raises up to heaven. It also presses down to hell. Even in his earthly life, Jesus inspired wonder, awe, and fear. Not the multitudes only, but his most intimate companions were frequently astonished at him and afraid. This impression was due first of all to the miraculous and superhuman element in Jesus' deeds. In this case it was akin to the fear of ghosts or angelic apparitions. But awe and fear were inspired also by what was purely human in Jesus' character and behavior especially by the authority and strangeness of his teaching. In the Gospels we have a sufficient clue to determine 
what it was in Jesus's teaching which so strangely affected the hearers. For example, the disciples, poor men as they were, were thrown into consternation by Jesus's uncompromising condemnation of riches. When he began to hint more and more plainly of his approaching death, his words proved terrible to the disciples, and they feared to question him farther. It was the severe and unworldly side of Jesus's teaching which remained strange and terrible to his own, and proved repellent to the multitude. This trait was not due to any harshness of disposition, but to Jesus's perception of the incomparable majesty of God. His exalted idea of God explains that uncompromising either-or, which was so terribly inconvenient to his hearers, either serve God or mammon, either save one's life or lose it, either confess Jesus or deny him. This trait which determines the whole plan of the fourth gospel is not peculiar to St. John, but as we see it is confirmed in detail by the synoptists. In view of the exalted sovereignty of God, Christ must be either Savior or Judge, according to the attitude of those who hear him. Jesus was ever the touchstone for the trial of hearts, but he tried them never so infallibly as when he hung upon the cross. He had always accounted men's attitude toward him the ultimate test of character, but never had the test cut so surely and so deep. Many had followed Jesus hitherto with false hopes of an earthly kingdom. Now they must recognize perforce that his kingdom is not of this world and that rule in his kingdom is exercised through service and sacrifice. Christ crucified is today again the touchstone of our hearts. Not once for all, but day by day is this test applied. So hard a thing it is to be a Christian. Each new choice must meet this test, and Christ be either our Savior or our Judge. Jesus reigns from the tree, and that throne is likewise his judgment seat. End of section 3